You're listening to the Sojourn Church Midtown Sermon Series, Refocus. The sermon series aims to answer the confusing questions we have been left with since the COVID-19 pandemic. The Refocus series is rooted in four passages from the book of Hebrews and helps remind our people of the supremacy of Christ and the renewing power of God's Word. Peace be with you. Today's scripture reading is Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen behind me. Hear the word of the Lord. Long ago, God spoke to the ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So he became superior to the angels, just as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning. Peace be with you. Well, it's good to be with you. If you're brand new to Sojourn, thank you so much for being here. We're thankful for you for sharing time with us here. We pray that this will be a blessing to you. If you've been here hundreds, maybe even thousands of times, then welcome to you as well. We are thankful for you and we value your presence here. My name is Timothy Paul Jones, and I'm one of the pastors here and have the privilege of starting off this series, Refocus. Well, A year or so ago, publishers started publishing books differently than they ever did before, about a year ago. They started printing them differently than they ever had printed books before. I know this because they started printing the type in them smaller because I began to struggle to see the type in these particular books. And and I'd buy books and the type would be smaller than it had ever been before. And, And not only that, then something else really strange began to happen. It wasn't just the books that I bought brand new that they were printing smaller. It was the ones already in my library. Like the type in it got littler. I was, I was struggling to see it and it was getting smaller. It was crazy. This, this miraculous thing that was happening is the type was shrinking in books. Crazy. Then it occurred to me, this takes a PhD to figure this out. Maybe the problem isn't the books. Maybe the problem is my eyes. <laughs> Maybe. So I went to the optometrist. And the optometrist tested my eyes. Took a look at them and had me do all the tests that you have to do, all those things like that. I was indeed, that was indeed the case. My eyes had lost their capacity to focus up close. And I said to him, what happened? And he said, you got old. He clearly missed the day of class in which they told him how to make your clients feel better, okay? He just said, you got old. I said, well, what are we going to do to stop this? And he said, the only way to stop getting older is death. I suggest reading glasses instead. I said, of those two options, I'll take the reading glasses, which I still don't want to use, and which is why I'm up here with a large print Bible and large print notes, nonetheless. But my eyes had lost their capacity to focus. That's what happened. My eyes had lost their capacity to focus, not all at once. It happened gradually. In fact, I didn't even notice it when it was happening. And for a long time, I could ignore it, And for a long time, I could even deny it. 
But eventually I had to come to terms with the fact that I was no longer focusing like I did before. Now that doesn't just happen with your eyes. It happens in your life. There's things where you're drifting, you're losing your focus, and you can ignore it for a while. You can deny it for a while, but there comes a point at which you've got to face the facts that you need to refocus. You lost your focus on something that really matters. Have you ever had that happen? Maybe with a relationship, maybe with your relationship with a person, with God, a particular sin that you're struggling with, that you realize it kind of emerged slowly and gradually in your life. Because you see, this is something to be aware of. Think about Relationships in our lives rarely fall apart all in one day, all at one moment. (laughs) Usually they crumble over time. You as a married couple, you neglect just being kind to one another, speaking kindly to one another, and you kind of let that go over time where you're speaking in frustration and anger and you're not stopping that, you're not checking that. And then beyond that, one other thing on another thing on another thing, and you find yourself in a place where your marriage relationship is really struggling. But it didn't happen all at once. It didn't blow up all at one time. It was over time, over years sometimes that this began to happen. You can do that with a sin in your life. Rarely does anyone just experience a sin and they suddenly just fall into sin all in one moment and nothing was leading up to it. Most often, you toyed with it in your mind a long time before you did it in your life. It's a gradual loss of focus. It's a gradual drift that goes on in our lives. And that's what was happening in this book that we call Hebrews. That's what's happening to the people in this particular book. You see, they were beginning to drift away from the truth that they knew. And these readers, let's think about the readers because it really matters for you to understand the time and the place when this was written. They were Jewish, but they were Jews who spoke the Greek language, participated in Greek culture in many ways, as many, many, in fact, most of the people in the world did at that time. They most likely lived in Western Asia Minor, the Western half of what we call today Turkey is most likely where they lived. And at some point, these Jewish people who lived in the western part of Asia Minor, they heard the message of Jesus. And when they heard the message of Jesus, they recognized that this story of Jesus was the fulfillment of all that they had hoped for as the Jewish people. And they accepted Jesus as their Messiah, as their Lord. But then came the 60s, not the 1960s or the 1860s, the 60s, 60s. They got to the 60s at this point. Sometime in the 60s, and the 60s was a time of chaos and crisis for them. Let's just go through just a few things that happened around the time this book was probably written. In the year 64 over in Rome, so west of where they were in Asia Minor, In the year 64, there was a fire that burned 11 of Rome's 14 districts. Nero, the emperor, was accused of setting the fire. He didn't really, but he's accused of it. And what he did to shift the blame away from himself was to blame Christians. And so he blamed the Christians. 
The Christians started the fire. So in the regions right around Rome and in the city of Rome, there was a persecution of Christians, and it was a horrific persecution. We have it recorded by a man named Tacitus, who was a Roman historian. He described it in this way. He said that they were, they were mocked as they were killed. They were covered with the skins of beasts. They were mangled by dogs. They were nailed to crosses. They were put as torches and burned alive to light the night around his gardens, Nero's gardens. That's what happened to Christians. There was persecution in the year 64. The next year after that, there was an epidemic. There was some sort of a virus broke out and it afflicted people in Rome in particular and in the regions around there. And the Roman historian Suetonius tells us about that in the year 65. He says that in addition to all these other calamities brought about by Nero, there was an epidemic. And in Rome alone, 30,000 people at least died of this epidemic. Well, if we were to go to the next year, we would go over to Judea. And in Judea, there was political unrest. We know that from the writings of Josephus and others, where the people, the Jews, were being oppressed in various ways and, and they were being treated unfairly. And here's what we read if we were to go to, the, to Josephus. He talks about how the, the soldiers had ran and captured and pursued some of them and brought them before the governor just for their, their protest of this and had them whipped and crucified. Let's think of the world that they're in, this time of crisis and chaos that they are in. To their west, there's persecution. There's an epidemic. To their east, there is an uprising. There is political unrest. And in the midst of all of this, it is becoming awkward to be a believer in Jesus. It's becoming difficult to be a believer in Jesus. You're vulnerable if you are a believer in Jesus. And many of them in this church, they were drifting. They were gradually losing their focus. And it says in Hebrews chapter two and verse one, for this reason, we must pay attention all the more to what we've heard so that we will not, the author said, drift away. They were drifting. They weren't denying Jesus. They were just losing their focus and drifting. They weren't denying him. They were downplaying him. They were treating him as less important. Instead of him being everything to them, he was one more thing to them. They were downplaying Jesus. And many of them had even started meeting, stopped meeting together. Some of them had even turned back to the Old Testament and, and had kind of marginalized Jesus and ignored what Jesus had done. And leaning back into the Jewish scriptures, it was becoming difficult to be a believer in Jesus. They were in a time of chaos and crisis. And in that time of chaos and crisis, they were losing their focus. And you may wonder, why should we look at this text today? Because we don't live in a world with any crisis, no chaos. I mean, today, science has pretty much conquered every disease. There's no suspicion of Christian beliefs. There's no political chaos. And still, even though everything in our world right now, as you look around, is just peachy, then maybe, just in case it got to be a time of crisis and chaos, we ought to take a look so we know what to do to be prepared, right? No, let's be honest with one another. It's been a rough 18 months. We've seen how vulnerable we are. A virus you can't even see can shut the planet down. <laughs> That's how vulnerable we are. We think we are strong and mighty and know so much but we are vulnerable. We felt 
isolation early on. Remember, it just seemed like too little toilet paper and too much Zoom. And then it got to the point where there's isolation, there's other difficulties that people are struggling with. We're having to answer dilemmas and decisions that we were never equipped to make. In the midst of it all, racial and social inequities came to the surface that have been there for decades, but people began to see them. And political divisions and all of this brought chaos and crisis in a way that's easy to drift and to lose our focus on what matters. So that's what this series is about. How do we refocus? How do we make sure and not drift away? How do we refocus on what really matters? And I want you to think back to the beginning of this. Think back to before all this began, are there areas in your life that you had focused well back then that you're struggling with now? It may be something as simple as scripture and prayer that now that the kids are home all day at times, it's really hard for you to get to that. It may be particular sins that you struggled with and those particular sins that you have struggled with, you're at a point right now that you just said, you know what, I'm just, I'm just not even gonna try to fight it anymore. I don't know what it is. But I want us to recognize that. I want us to recognize what it is, where it is that we may have lost our focus. And to look at Hebrews, which is a book written for people who were drifting away and losing their focus for us to be able to recover what really matters. Now this week we're looking at chapter one, verses one through four. And when you see verse one, right off the bat, you recognize there's something a little different about this particular letter. That it's not really a letter like you typically think of a letter in the New Testament. Because most letters start with Paul or they start with James. They start with a name, don't they? But there's no name at the beginning of this. Now, I am not even going to speculate or waste time speculating about who wrote the book, okay? We could do that. That's not what we're going to do right now. I am with a guy in the third century named Origen who says, who wrote this? God only knows. And that's what he said. If it was good enough that long ago, it's good enough for me. But it really does matter at one level, this idea that sometimes we think of being from Paul. Because even though I don't think Paul wrote it, Paul is important for this book. You see, every book in your New Testament, this is important for us to know, every book in your New Testament comes from either an eyewitness of the risen Lord Jesus or a close associate of an eyewitness of the risen Lord Jesus. And so as we look at this book, we wonder if that's what all the books marks, all these books, then how is this one in here? Well, if we were to go to chapter 13 in the book, we'll find that it mentions Timothy, who was connected to the Paul. So here's what the early church knew. Even though they weren't sure who wrote it, they did know this. It was connected somehow to the people with Paul, and Paul had seen the risen Lord Jesus. So it comes into our scriptures under the apostolic authority of the apostle Paul because they knew somehow it was connected to him. But in truth, what this text has to say matters far more than who exactly may have said it. Because what happens in these opening verses is the author calls his listeners, his readers, to refocus by remembering. He's not telling them any new truth. He's not telling them anything brand new that they haven't heard before. He is reminding them of what they already know. And the first thing he tells them to remember is only two things I'm going to give you that he tells them to remember. And the first one of these is remember who has the final word. That's the first one. Remember who has the final word. 
This opening sentence of this text is one of the most beautiful in all of Scripture. Long ago, God spoke to the prophets, by the, to the fathers, by the prophets, at different times and in different ways. It's a beautiful opening text, but it's also, if you think about it, it's a little strange too. And here's why it's strange. The author knows that the people are facing a time of crisis and chaos. He knows that they are having, facing circumstances that are so dire that they're causing, causing some of them to drift away from their focus on Jesus. He knows all this, but he never mentions here their circumstances. <laughs> He never mentions in this first chapter, indeed any of the early chapters, he doesn't mention the circumstances they're facing at this time. And what I feel like at first when I read this is, where's the comfort? This isn't the comfort they need. <laughs> These people are facing the possibility of persecution from the West. They're facing an epidemic that's happened to the West. They're facing political unrest to the East. And all you have to say is God spoke. That's all you have to say. And I feel like sometimes as a pastor, I've, as I've walked beside people and stood beside people in the funeral line when people are coming through there, right there. And, and some of the words that people say are not the words of comfort that are needed. <laughs> I feel like that with the sunbase. There's there sometimes people come through and they're like, oh, well, I'm sure God needed her more than you did. It's, what was that? Literally, I've heard somebody say that in, in, in that line right there. And, and, and if you keep talking like that, this is going to be a double funeral because somebody's going to take you out for doing that. But it's, it's the, it doesn't seem like the words of comfort that people need sometimes. And that's my first reaction to this. But here's what's really important about this. In truth, this is actually exactly what they need. This is precisely what they need. Because when you notice how God has spoken, it makes all the difference in the world. You see, he has spoken, it says, in son. Spoken to us in his son is how he has spoken. The son makes all the difference in the world for this. Because this isn't just saying God spoke from a distance through people in the past. This is saying that the Son has entered into human history. He has become one with your experiences. He has entered into what you experience and how you are facing life. The Son makes all the difference. You see, in the past, God had spoken in prophecies and in proclamations from a distance but never before had he spoken in a person. But in Jesus Christ, God himself spoke in a person. And not just any person, but the Son. And the Son is the one who has the final word. The Son has the final word. The Son is the final word. Look at what he describes about Jesus here. It's beautiful. He says first that he is the heir of all things. At the end, he will receive all things. Now that's important because what that's letting us know, what that's communicating to us is that at the end of time, after all the conflicts, after all the chaos and all the crises have ended, at the end of time, he'll still be there and he's in charge. But then it gets even better. It says it was through him, by him, that all things were created to begin with. So not only that, he is the one who created it. He is the one who will receive it at the end. He is at the beginning and he is at the end of it all. That's what he's declaring. And then he moves from that 
to say that he is the radiance or the reflection of the very being of God. He's an exact imprint of the Father's very substance. And, and right here, it's this, you start seeing that he is almost struggling to find the right words to describe the greatness of who Jesus is. Because remember, for them in this time, this notion that we believe and confess, and rightly so, that God is one God in three persons, this was a relatively new idea to them. And he's trying to find the words to describe that this son is not only somebody sent by the Father, he is God in human flesh. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit, one God in three persons. It's beautiful what he describes in that. And then he goes on as if that's not enough. He says he's sustaining all things by his powerful word. Nobody but Jesus, nobody but someone who is God in flesh could sustain all things by his powerful word. This is an affirmation of the deity, the Godhood of Jesus. And this is so beautiful because this is something that Christianity alone can offer. No other religion can offer this or does that God himself has not simply spoken from a distance but God has chosen to enter into human flesh. God has chosen to walk among us and he has chosen to experience what we have experienced. That is something that Christianity alone offers and no one else does. And it's a beautiful truth. We have a God who refuses to remain at a distance. We have a God who has come near. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says this, how can anyone live with the terrifying thought that the, the hurricane has become human, that the fire has become flesh, that life itself has walked into our midst? Christianity either means that or it means nothing. It is the most devastating disclosure of the deepest reality of the world, or it is a sham, total nonsense. Most people unable to cope with either of these two things are condemned to live life in the shallow world in between. It's a beautiful truth that God himself has walked among us. So how does this help us regain our focus? We ought to remember that Jesus has the final word because Jesus is the final word. Jesus has the final word because he is the final word. Doesn't mean God doesn't have anything more that he has said or is going to say, but it means that everything God ever has said or will say points to Jesus. Everything that God says points to Jesus. And once Jesus was revealed as God's final word, we also see here, the end of time began. It said here that these last days... There are some people that spend a lot of time wondering, are we in the last days? And your only answer needs to be, yep, we are. Have been for almost 2,000 years. <laughs> because when Jesus emerged from that tomb, the end of time began right then. <laughs> because that was God's guarantee that at the end of time, he will still be sovereign. He will still reign. He has conquered death. He will make all things right and new. So we have been in the last days ever since Jesus burst forth from that tomb. So why do these people and us, why do we need to hear this to refocus? Well, here's why. 
the crises and the chaos that we see, we sometimes feel like they're the final word. Now, somebody asks you if they're the final word, you say, no, they're not the final word. I mean, but the way you really respond, the way I respond to it. We become angry and uptight and tense, and we're afraid that the things just are going to fall apart completely in the world. What are we doing? We're acting like those things are the final word. Those things matter. I'm not saying it doesn't matter, but it's not the final word because the final word is Jesus. God has spoken the final word, and it is Jesus. The future has a name, and that name is Jesus. The final word is Jesus. He is the one who reigns. He was there at the beginning. He will be there at the end. He reigns and he sustains all things in between. He is the final word. None of the things we face are the final word. Jesus is the final word. That's the first thing to remember. Remember who has the final word. Here's the second thing. Remember what the word has done. Remember what the word has done. And I want us to brush over this text at the end of verse three, where it says, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty. Having made purification for sins, he sat. Purification. It's not a word we use a lot, except talking about water, purification. But it's a word the Bible uses. It's a really important word to think about right here. Cleansing, washing, purification. Because when Jesus suffered on the cross, what he did, what he purchased was purification from sin for all of those who trust in him. That's important. Because here's something that I recognize. We often think about forgiveness but we don't think about purification. Think of, even atheists think about forgiveness. There's an atheist novelist named Marganita Lasky, and she said one time, what I envy most about Christians is forgiveness. I have no one to forgive me. We all know we need to be forgiven. Even the atheist knows that. But we often don't take a step beyond that to think of purification. Like, I think often we'd say, I feel forgiven sometimes. I feel like I've been forgiven. But rarely would we ever say, I feel pure. I don't think we'd say that. Either because of what you've done or what has been done to you. I don't feel pure. Do you realize that Jesus, through what he did on the cross, if you trust in him, has made you not merely forgiven, but pure. You've been made pure. Think about that. I think of a, a scene from one of the Avengers movies in which Natasha Romanoff, she says, I've got red in my ledger. I'd like to wipe it out. And Loki says what all of our consciences say. Can you? Can you really wipe out that much red? Your ledger is dripping. It's gushing red. The horrors of what you've done are a part of you. They will never go away. You can never be clean. Wow. That's all of our consciences if we're honest. We feel at time, we know my 
ledger is dripping. I am guilty. But what Jesus offers says he makes us pure. Pure. Not because of what you've done, not because of your efforts, but because of what Jesus has done in suffering in your place, he can make you pure so that when God the Father looks at you, he doesn't see all of your impurity. He doesn't see your dripping red ledger of guilt. But he instead sees the purity of Jesus. In Christ, I am pure. Not just forgiven. That is wonderful. But we are made pure before God. You're pure. Think of the ways just in this past week you've fallen short. The things that you've done, the memories of what's done to you, and you can say in Christ, I am pure. I'm pure. The word not only has the final word about history, he has the final word about you and your guilt. He has the final word about that. And that is our comfort. And then it says here that he sat. Having made purification for sins, he sat. Now, when it speaks of these things like sitting on a throne and at the right hand of all those things, this, it's a metaphor, okay? They, the people even then, they knew that there is not some chair hanging out in space that Jesus sits in. They know that, okay? They knew that. But metaphors really mean things as well. And when it says that he sat, it's an indication that he had finished what he set out to do. The cost, the price of your purification, it's already been purchased. <laughs> it's done. He finished it and he sat down because he's done with it. He's done with it. That is a beautiful truth about what the word of God, Jesus Christ, has done. And it is because of that that Jesus is better. It says he became superior to the angels just as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. Jesus is better. He's greater. He's superior than anything to anything else because of what he has done and who he is. Jesus is ultimately satisfying. He satisfies us. So about a year ago, I could not focus clearly. So I had to figure out what to do about it. I found out what to do about it. I needed some help from others to be able to do something about it. And if you realize as you look at who Jesus is that you've lost your focus, you need some help to be equipped for you to be able to focus on this Jesus who is greater than we could ever imagine. Greater. So what are we going to do? That's what the next few weeks of this series are about. So think of the ways that you've lost your focus. Maybe it's that in your ethics and your morals of your life, you're being more shaped by the culture than by the Word of God. It may be that you've gotten your identity so wrapped up in certain politics and things like that that you're operating with anger and rage and seething all the time and you've lost your focus. Take comfort in the fact that because Jesus has the final word, you don't have to. Do you realize that? That in arguments 
about things that, that you may want to discuss. You don't have to have the final word about these. That means we can engage in ways that are calm and kind and humble with one another. We can do that because of who Jesus is. But how do we get this focus back that we have lost at times? Well, the next couple of weeks, and introduce it next week, then in two weeks, you'll actually be provided with it. There's going to be a survey to help you take the next step toward refocusing. That's what we're going to be doing. That's what this is preparing you to be able to do, is to focus on who you are in Christ as a disciple, as a member of this family, and as somebody who is sent out to the world. So my goal this week is to get you prepared for that, to get you ready for that. And to do that, I want us to do something that uh, is, is a little bit unique, a little bit different on this. Now, usually, you know that I give you three or four things at the end of a sermon. If you've been here for, for a while, you know. I give you three or four things at the end of every sermon for you to do, don't I? This time, I'm only going to give you one. That means if I only give you one, that one really matters, doesn't it? Because I'm only give you one thing. I'm only give you one thing. I want you to think through your story as part of what I'm going to do. And I want you to do this in a way that gets you ready to refocus. Here's what I want you to do. You start it right now if you want. I want you to make a list of the times in your life that you knew for sure Jesus was better. Jesus was superior. Moments. Moments in your life that you just had this clear recognition that Jesus is satisfying. He is superior. He is great. He is better. He's wonderful. Moments in your life that you had that sense. I want you to list those. And you list kind of that story of, of your life on that. Just list those one by one. I want you to choose one of those. And this week, return to that. Now, you may not be able to return to the place because it may be a long ways away. You may not be able to return to the moment. Return to something that will remind you of one of those moments. And spend some time in prayer and praise in which you seek and say, God, I want to get that focus back. I want that focus. The point is not the place. The point is not the experience. The point is the God who was revealed to you in it. To make a list of those moments. Choose one and go back there somehow. Maybe not literally, but go back to that and seek that. Kind of started my own list. I don't know what I'm going to choose from it. To give you some examples of the types of things we might know. If I started listing this, I'd list a moment when I was 14 or 15. And I was at one side of a softball field and I was, had wanted nothing to do with God. And as I walked across that softball field, something happened I still can't explain. I realized the direction I'm going in my life is not the one that's going to lead where I want it to go, really. It's a path of destruction, and I know it. And somehow, by the time I got to the other side of that softball field, I treasured Jesus, and I can't explain it. Maybe that's happened in your life. I can think of a, another instance in my own life where I was in college, I was in a library, and I didn't know for sure whether or not I wanted to believe in Jesus anymore. All of the evidence in my mind seemed to be against believing in Jesus I didn't know if it was reasonable, and I was, I was teetering on walking away from it. 
But I could not get past the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. I just couldn't. It was just like this pebble in my shoe that kept chafing at me, and I couldn't get around it. I realized in the midst of that that I, don't, I can't explain everything, but I do believe in this Jesus. I believe in this. I can think of a time a couple of decades ago, which on a Monday morning as a pastor, I felt like I was a failure at everything, not just pastoring, but everything. And I wasn't just done with pastoring, I was done with life. And I went, and for some reason, I bought two CDs, U2, All That You Can't Leave Behind, and John Coltrane and Love Supreme. I don't know. I bought those two. I listened to those. I just drove around in the car that day, and I listened to those and prayed, prayed. And somehow, between John Coltrane and Bono, God spoke to me. I don't know how that happened. I'm not talking audibly. I'm just saying that it became real and clear to me in a beautiful and new way. You think of your life, those moments in your life like that. And you may look at your life and say, I don't, I don't have anything. Then this week, pray and seek God and ask. Ask him to reveal his presence and his love and his glory to you. Ask him, beg him, seek him. But that's sort of what you do this week. List some of those moments, choose one, and sometime this week, go back somehow. And I want you to spend some time in prayer, meditation on God, and say, God, I want to get that focus back. I want to do that. Whatever it costs, whatever it takes, I want to get that focus back. I want that. And over the next few weeks, you'll be prepared to take that next step, whatever it may be for you. And knowing that God, the God who created in the beginning, is going to be there at the end, and he sustains it all the way. Praise him. Praise him. Let's pray. Hi, I'm Jamal Williams, lead pastor of Sojourn Midtown. Thanks for listening. At Midtown, we value gospel-centeredness, biblical faithfulness, transformative relationships, diverse fellowship, creativity in the arts, and relentless mission. For more sermons, info about our church, visit sojournchurch.com slash midtown.